I were to say that the national championship football game last Monday night between Clemson and Alabama was a battle of the titans, would you think I was meaning that literally, that two mythological, powerful deities squared off? Or that I'm talking about a great football game between two well-coached teams? Hopefully the second, which is to say that in that case you were able to understand what metaphorical language is all about. One of the gifts of being a human being is that we have developed metaphors as one of the primary ways of communicating with others. Metaphors are figures of speech that identify one thing as being the same thing as another thing. Using a metaphor stops a lot of unnecessary explanation. To say someone has a heart of gold or to say they have a heart of stone gives us a clear sense that they have empathy and compassion or they don't. When Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage, Shakespeare wrote it in his own way, but today the metaphor can best be understood when we turn to age of 11 or 12 years old and we discover that the clothes we wear and the phone we put in our pocket helps manifest the pretense of who we are. Now we see the world as a stage, men and women only actors. We often use food language metaphorically. We chew the fat, devour a good meal, digest the facts. Some things we hear are hard to swallow, or we are gullible like fish. We swallow it hook, line, and sinker. We might let things simmer on the back burner, come to a boil as we cook up our excuses. In fact, after last week's sermon, one of you came up to me and said, you know, you not only gave me a lot to chew on, but this time I didn't find it that hard to swallow. In fact, I was able to digest most of it. I knew exactly what he meant, but if someone was standing next to us who was trying to learn English as a second language they would have no idea what he was talking about. In fact, often when we hear metaphorical language, it leaves us, excuse me, with a bad taste in our mouth. All of this is to say how important it is for us to understand, us to understand uh, the value of metaphor, especially in the Bible, in order for us to feast on its rich, complex food for thought that feeds our souls. For instance, to say that the Israelites traveled through the desert for 40 years in order to get to the other side of the river and plant a stake, to get to the land of milk and honey is to understand the literal translation of it, but it misses the whole meaning metaphorically. In a way, that's sort of turning 
wine into vinegar. Instead, what a delicious metaphorical description that story is about our own lives and the inevitable wilderness that we all must journey through before we get to the promised land of milk and honey. Milk because there is such an abundance of fertile land that there's plenty for the cows and sheep to eat in order to produce, and honey because there's, there are so many flowers the bees are making pot after pot of honey. Some people say every word is a metaphor of sorts, pointing to a greater meaning than the word itself can explain. The word love, the word faith, about God. Is God a father, mother, parent? A judge? A force? A higher power? How about Jesus? A shepherd? The word, the way, the bread of life, the vine? It turns out that the root metaphors that we use to understand life serve as the foundation upon which we build those lives. I'm going to say it again. The root metaphors upon which we understand life serve as the foundation upon which we build those lives. Language creates worlds. The language we use and the way we understand the metaphors of our lives create the way we respond in life. For instance, do you see life as a battle or a journey? Is love a red, red rose or a bed of thorns? Is the United States a melting pot or a container with borders? The way we understand those metaphors determines how we live and how we vote. Now, all of this may seem like just a mishmash of homiletical stew to continue the metaphorical ride, but I am serving up this first course because I want us to see, especially in this morning's passage from the Gospel of John, the rich abundance of metaphorical language that John uses for many of his stories about Jesus. John, more than any other gospel writer, is the poet, is the metaphorical genius. And for us to miss that is to miss the point of the text. In a way, it is a five-star restaurant. Reading this text literally brings something to eat. But I think the story can be seen in a much wider and deeper and meaningful way as being just about the divine power of Jesus to turn water into wine or to turn five loaves and two fishes into enough food to feed 5,000 people or to walk on water or to raise Lazarus from the grave. You can buy that literally if you want, but I still think doing that in a way, means that you're eating the top first rather than going underneath to where the deeper nuggets 
or mind. So hear me now as I try to, as you try to scoop out the metaphors that layer this passage from John's chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, known as the wedding at Cana. On the third day, Jesus, uh, there was a wedding in Cana, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, "Uh, okay, mom, so I'm not sure why I'm supposed to be involved. That's my translation. A lot of people say that Jesus rebuked her, but that's really not in the text. That's more about Protestants trying to justify how Mary is not really the mother of God. And there, uh, anyway, Jesus basically says, I'm not sure why you're coming to me about this. Or literally, woman, what concern is that to you and me? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. His mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone jars for the Jewish rites of purification. There were 20 or 30 gallons, each holding that amount. And Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. Now remember, they didn't really have hoses. They're doing this by hand. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief wine steward. So they took it. And when the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, John says, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So where are the metaphors? Take the first verse, on the third day. Now you can go back and retrace the historical chronology of what he's trying to say. The third day from when? When Jesus called the disciples... But I think by doing that, we're missing the deeper metaphorical meaning. What happened on the third day? Jesus said that the Messiah is to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. So here we are on the third day when there was a wedding in Cana. Hmm. A wedding. A wedding is the metaphor often used in the Bible about the messianic banquet at the end times when we will all be gathered at the wedding supper of the Lamb who is in heaven. Ah, now I get it. By the way, our metaphorical understandings of what a wedding is is a far cry, so to speak, from the biblical understanding. When we hear people say that we just need to go back to how marriage was understood in the Bible, they're working from a different metaphor entirely. In biblical times, all marriages were arranged, usually between the father and the, of the bride and the father of the groom, or between the father of the bride and the groom. There were financial enactments 
They were arranged as a financial uh, uh, give and take. Hence, dowry grew out of that. Marriage was meant to be an economic arrangement to help manage the estate, mainly through the birth of children. The wife is the chattel, the property of that transaction. The children are meant to be the production. And the children, I mean boys. If, if we believed in the way that Disney portrays it as a romantic, happily ever after sentimental event that leaves us all ooey and gooey, no wonder we lose our excitement about this marriage somewhere around the first or second year we're in it when we discover that it's hard work and discipline and that love is way more than a feeling. Expand the metaphor of marriage even more, and you find that the biblical understanding of marriage grew out of God's relationship with the people of Israel. God had married them, and they, him, the people of Israel, were, they were the bride of Christ, just like the church, um, excuse me, of God, just like the church is the bride of Christ. With this understanding, then, the biblical wedding feast points to the joyful moment when all of God's children are gathered to eat and drink and, yes, even dance in the wedding glow of God's unconditional love and redemption for all creation. That's what we're looking forward to. John's metaphors are rich indeed, but he takes us even deeper. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus goes to him to complain. Why is Jesus brought into this? Turns out, the metaphorical symbolism of wine is woven throughout the Bible. Jesus is the vine, and we, the church, represent the branches. And the fruit we yield, of course, are grapes that are then turned into wine. The three staples of everyday life, wine and bread and water, are turned sacramentally into symbols of the very presence of Christ. Now, go even deeper. The story of wine is the metaphor for the cup of Christ's suffering on the cross. As Christ stood in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, Father, please release me from this. If it is thy will, take this cup away. It is about the cross and the blood of Christ, which is why he and his mother were at sort of cross purposes. She's dealing with a literal understanding of wine, and Jesus knows that there is plenty of wine to go around. And then he says this, my hour has not yet come. Four times in John's gospel, Jesus says, my hour or my time has not yet come. And in every case, Jesus is pointing to the moment of his death and crucifixion and resurrection, the passion. That's what he means, my hour has not come. We're still not deep enough. There were six empty 
jars used for the purification rites for the people of Israel to wash their hands and wash their arms and wash their legs with before they could enter the house. And Jesus takes those jars, still probably rancid from the old water that was, they were full of, and transforms those ritualistic vessels into casks of the best wine imaginable that wash not the inside but nourish and wash the out excuse me the not the outside but nourish and wash the inside and it's not just any wine it's not just gallo wine it is the best wine ever in case we missed it still John ends his story by saying Jesus did this, the first of the signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And John, in this one last metaphorical opportunity, tells us that Jesus turning water into wine is a sign, the first of seven in John's gospel, pointing to something other than itself, a metaphor, And what it points to specifically is the glory of Christ. In itself, a metaphor for the Christ on the cross, where the fullness of God's glory is being revealed in the passion and suffering death of Jesus. And then he ends it with these words, and they believed in him. They believed in him that he could turn water into wine, literally, or that they believed in him that he was indeed the very manifestation of the glory of God and the presence that turned all things into something much richer. A rich symphony, beautifully orchestrated and building to a full-bodied crescendo as one wine critic called a bottle of Cabernet he had just tasted, or our watered-down, shallow, polluted, stagnant, and murky waters of life. There's a big metaphorical difference. And not just to savor it, but to literally boil forth, to boil over That's the thing with these metaphors. They are meant to serve as the very heat upon which we cook our lives. And Jesus' metaphor of this wine and John using it as the best wine at the wedding feast tells us that we no longer have to die of thirst in a monsoon. There are ways, of course, that we can also turn wine into water. When we start seeing things like Eeyore, the pessimistic, glad, excuse me, not glad, sad, gloomy donkey in Paddington hair, depressed, when we start seeing that, excuse me, not Paddington hair, I have my metaphorical books mixed up, (laughs) Winnie the Pooh. When we start seeing people 
who are different from us as being someone we should be afraid of and strangers we're turning wine into water when we start reducing our faith in Christianity down to something that we think reduces our freedoms instead of the ultimate source of salvation and freedom and liberation, we're turning wine into water. When we read the Bible as if it is a textbook of engineering as being completely black and white, we're turning wine into water. When we live as if we can understand what is absolutely true, we're turning wine into water. When we see life as being a competition rather than a cooperation, we're turning wine into water when we think we're self-made. If we think that there is a difference because of the color of our skin through this awful thing called racism, if we think that the meaning of life comes from the pursuit of money, any addiction, we're turning wine into water. If we think that a lottery ticket is the hope we have for our way out, how many bought them? I'm not going <laughs> to. If we turn love into an obligation or a law or something that leaves us guilty, if we think that we must earn our way and our love from God, if we see life as being relational and a joy rather than a burden, we are now turning water back into wine. Flip it back, anger, resentment, despair. The metaphor we use helps us determine the lives we live. If your life is bland, bored, tasteless, bloated, or just slightly scorched, why not just change the metaphor? Is suffering a waste or is it a fertilizer? Is our faith, our faith a complete book or is it a work in progress? Are we meant to always work for our food or does God by grace give us a free handout? Is Jesus Christ just another divine, powerful prophet or is Jesus Christ the source of life's abundance? 120 gallons spilling over with the best vintage you can ever taste. It all depends on the metaphor we chew on.